This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. On the Becoming Educated podcast today is Pratesh Raichura. Pratesh is Head of Science at Michaela Community School. He blogs at boonsinblue.wordpress.com about school values, pedagogy, and hashtag CogSciSci. He has recently contributed two chapters in the new book, The Power of Culture, written by Michaela Teachers. Pratesh has given talks at a number of research ed events on topics such as quality teacher talk, effective planning of teacher-led lessons, and effective questioning, which we will look into and explore in today's podcast. Pratesh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Certainly, I'm fairly looking forward to unpicking some of those themes with you as we go. And just to ease us into the the podcast, can you please give us a a little pot history of of you and and your career to date in teaching? Yeah, sure. So I wanted to go into teaching ever since I was quite young. So as soon as I graduated, I studied biological natural sciences at university. I went straight into teaching and I trained through Teach First. And I was placed at a school in East London where I stayed for three years. And after my three years at that school, I joined my current school, which is Michaela Community School in Wembley. And I've been there for three years now as well. So I'm currently, my role is the head of science. um, And I teach all three sciences up to GCSE. And then I teach biology at A-level as well. Brilliant. Thank you. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed both the chapters that you, you wrote in the, in, the, in the Power of Culture. But we're going to explore your, the talks that you've given at ResearchEd and you, and you made them available via, via your Twitter feed as well. And I highly recommend that listeners, after listening to this, that they go ahead and, and, and listen to each one because you, you really offer some great insights into your classroom, especially the I thoroughly enjoyed the effective questioning one when you were sharing clips from from your teaching. It's a very, it's a very it takes a very brave teacher to share with the world their, their actual action shots. But I took a lot from that, so thank you. And so, as I say, we're going to discuss this idea of teacher-led lessons. What do you mean by teacher-led lessons, and have you always taught this way? Yeah, so I would say the answer is no. I've definitely come on a journey. So when I first started teaching, the the kind of the normal way I would plan my lessons was largely the way in which I was trained and and is quite common to teach lessons is to think of lessons as being student led. So in those lessons, you have the rather than you being the, the authority figure in the classroom and you saying this is the knowledge we are going to learn and the teacher imparting that knowledge, I would always be thinking, how can I get the students to work this out for themselves? And that was kind of the the underpinning principle of all my planning. And so rather than giving a really clear explanation, I would ask a series of questions using some prompts of some sort and try and lead the students to an answer. Um, And often my lessons might involve lots of kind of activity and there'd be sort of a buzz in the room, which might look like having different posters around the room with series of questions and bits of kind of patches of information. And I'd ask the students to go around and fill in their tables and, and and I think I, I would kind of take a step back and let the, the, the this kind of the students lead their own learning, as it were. And when they were stuck and they had a question for me, rather than answering the question directly, I would kind of flip it to them and say, well, what do you think based on what you know? Look at that fact over there. How do you think it connects to this fact? And I think the the the, the reason that way of teaching is so um, 
so kind of alluring is because you feel like you're really developing the, the, the students' thinking skills and that they're learning th these transferable skills which will be useful for them across their subjects and across the disciplines within science. Um, but what I found very quickly was that actually when, when I took a step back and looked at it in terms of how much they are picking up, it was very, very slow, their rate of learning. And they weren't retaining things. And I'd marking exams later in the year and I'd be thinking, gosh, I've definitely, you know, they explored this. I remember that lesson where they were going around and the, the information was there on the posters. Why haven't they remembered it? And eventually I, I started doing some reading and having conversations with other colleagues. And I realized that, yeah, there is this spectrum of you've got student led lessons, but then there are teacher led lessons. And in the teacher led lessons, the focus and, and the, the paradigm for planning is completely different. The paradigm here is how can I, as the teacher who has the subject knowledge, deliver such a clear explanation that the pupils leave the lesson, A, having un understood the concept really well, but B, as a teacher, I'm asking lots of questions to make sure they understand. And when they don't know, crucially, rather than asking them, what do you think? I'm telling them. And this idea of just telling the pupils that, that in front of you what the answer is, and then getting them to rehearse the knowledge was utterly transformative for me. And the way that transition kind of happened in my school was uh, in, my, in my department with a few other teachers, I had this conversation with them, um, and we started introducing the use of um, the resources, we changed the resources we were using. So we, I started to write up pieces of text which summarized the key ideas of the lesson, and I spent all my lesson planning writing questions that go alongside this text. And so we would read the text together. I'd, I would explain further, draw some diagrams on the board and ask lots of questions and then get the people to answer those questions on their own. And so rather than the pupils thinking about, oh, where do I go next in the room? Who do I speak to? Who's in my group? All their thinking was focused on what's the content? What's the answer to this question? And that shift in thinking from my perspective in terms of deliver information, get them to rehearse rather than get them to kind of come up with the ideas themselves meant that the rate of learning just accelerated and the pupils were felt more successful. And there was a really positive uh, feedback loop between how engaged the pupils were in the lessons because they were able to answer questions better. The quality of their answers was improving. Their knowledge was improving. And then I've just been really interested in this in this way of teaching ever since. And I guess uh, as I've used direct instruction or explicit instruction more and more, um, I found that the my planning is getting better there and their learning is getting better as a result. Definitely. And I like what you what you mentioned towards the end there about about that rate of learning accelerating for the children rather than what you mentioned about the slow um uptake of learning when they're going to find stuff and you're asking them those questions compared to telling them and rehearsing the rate of learning is accelerated and, and they're achieving more success more quickly as well so thanks for, for articulating that so we're going to unpick kind of some of the things you mentioned there to do with with that teacher-led lessons and we're going to begin with explanations hmm. what are your keys to to delivering explanations so I would say the most fundamental thing is having really strong subject knowledge of that topic. Once you as the, the teacher are really clear, these are the key ideas I want my pupils to take away, 
um, then you're able to start to plan your explanation really well from a position of really clear knowledge. So I would say the first thing is kind of knowing the whole, that, that, that subject, that topic area really well, and then starting off by distilling it into its really fundamental points that you want by the end of the lesson or by the end of the unit, the pupils to be able to explain themselves. And then in terms of delivery, I would say there's a couple of principles that I would use. So the first one is always start with concrete ideas, not abstract ones. So, I mean, I've used this example before in some of my talks, but I think it's, it's, it's a nice example to use, which is when teaching the idea of homeostasis. Um, if I was to give a definition of homeostasis, it's, it's the, the constant maintenance, uh, sorry, the maintenance of a constant internal environment. Now, if you're not a science teacher or you don't, that doesn't, that probably won't mean very much to you. But starting with the definition, it's the same for the kids who've probably never heard of that word before and don't know what it means. Giving them a definition first isn't that helpful. But if I start with a concrete example and I say, right, when we're doing exercise, what happens to our temperature? Has anyone noticed what happens to your body temperature? It goes up and we start to sweat. What happens when you're feeling really cold and your temperature goes down? Well, we start to, to shiver, don't we? And, and, we, and we warm ourselves up. And when we're doing exercising and we start to sweat, that helps us. How does that affect our body temperature? Well, it helps us to cool down. Well, this is exactly what we mean by homeostasis, our body doing things to restore a particular um, a factor in the body, like temperature, back to normal. And now when I give the definition, maintaining a constant, so a steady internal environment, internal being something like temperature, that suddenly has hold, holds much more meaning to it. And so when giving an explanation, if you start with concrete examples and then explain the abstract idea or the general definition, it really helps people to follow along. So that'd be my first kind of key idea. The second thing would be to use diagrams as you're explaining. Um, so using diagrams, even if it means that you are drawing a little flow chart, whether it is a diagram of the structure you're talking about. So in biology, often I'm talking about different parts of the body or anatomy or cells, having a diagram just helps the pupils to focus their attention on the thing you're talking about. So that would be my second key thing, sometimes known as dual coding. Um, and then the third thing would be, you cannot separate explanations from questions. Um, and you must ask lots of questions when delivering an explanation. And I'd say that that kind of falls into two categories. One is to make sure that your pupils are listening because the last thing you want is to be droning on and on and then, then their kind of attention is what's going on outside the window and then the second one is checking for understanding and really pushing their thinking um, but i think we're going to talk about question questioning a little bit later on um, but those i would say summarize kind of the three key principles certainly we're certainly going to unpick some of the, the questioning strategies that you use in principles there and you mentioned a little bit there about making sure that the pupils are listening to you. So, so how do you make sure that pupils are listening to you? And to follow that, how do you sustain their attention? It's mm, a really good question. So I think if I was thinking from my previous teacher self in terms of student-led learning, in my head, the engagement would have come from the kind of the buzz in, in the room as the activity was going on, as they were walking around, looking at their posters or as they were teaching each other. Um, but just because the pupils are physically active or they're doing something that looks like they're busy engaging in learning, doesn't mean they're thinking hard. 
uh, doesn't mean they're actually 100% on task. Um, whereas when you're talking as a teacher and there's silence in the classroom and the, and the pupils are listening to you, um, they're certainly, you, you, the chances are that they're either listening to you or they're silent if, you, you know, if you've managed to get that behavior under control and they're listening, but they might not be paying full attention to you. So as a teacher, first of all, the behavior has to be there if you're going to deliver good teacher-led lessons. And so uh, at my school, we have some really clear routines for pupils to follow. Um, and so one of the routines that we use, uh, which is taken from um, Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion, which is a, a book I'd highly recommend, um, and the strategy is called SLANT. So it stands for, it's an acronym, which stands for sit up straight, listen, uh, answer questions, never interrupt and track the teacher. So whenever there's a transition in the lesson uh, and the teacher says three, two, one and slant, that always means that the pupils should put their pens down, they cross their arms and they should be looking at their teacher and their attention should be on the teacher. And as a teacher, your, your responsibility isn't just to say three, two, one slant, you're then scanning the room and really making sure the pupils know you're looking to see everyone is complying and that everyone is, is looking at you. Because at the end of the day, if the people's not looking at you, the chances are they're not paying attention to you. Um, and so it's really important that they're giving you the signal that they are listening. Um, so that would be the first thing. And then the second thing would be you want to check that they're listening to your explanations. So asking lots of simple questions to check for listening. So if I was to deliver a, a simple fact, so I was to say, I don't know, something like uh, during photosynthesis, plants use energy from light uh, to make glucose. I might then say, what are plants making during photosynthesis? And ask that question straight away. Now the answer, if you were listening, is very obvious and there's no reason that people should get that wrong, that most people should get that wrong unless they weren't paying attention. And so using questions to check that people are listening is really important. And it actually serves two benefits. One, it tells you they are listening. But second of all, it reassures the pupils who are listening that they are able to follow. And that feeling of success when you can answer a teacher's question is really motivating. So it's important for both the teacher to check, but also for the pupils to feel engaged in the lesson. Um, and they like being held to account in this way because when they, when, they, when they realize that they're not paying attention and you catch them out, you know, ultimately the kids want to learn. They really want to succeed in your lessons and you holding them to account to for, in terms of listening is something that ultimately they are grateful for because it means they learn better and they feel more motivated. So I would say two key things. One, uh, on the behavioral side of things, making sure there is silence and attention towards you in the lesson. And two, asking lots of relatively simple questions for them to engage with to show them that they are successful at listening and fit as a way of you holding them to account. Um, and then just following the behavior system, if they're unable to answer your questions, then have a stern word with them and say, look, I, you know, I really want you to succeed. So I need to make sure you're listening, make sure your attention is there next time. And, I, and ask them a follow-up question moments later to make sure they're paying attention, for example. Exactly. I like, really like what you said there about when you had that stern word, I really like when you, you started there, how by saying, I really want you to succeed in, in your stern word. I think that's, that's really fantastic and, and a bit that, that sometimes sometimes is missing in those conversations. And I also like what you said about when you, when you as a teacher, you say three, two, one, slant, you don't just sit back, you're, you're looking, you're watching, you're, you're, 
you're checking and you're correcting. So I like how you said there. And, and you mentioned using simple comprehension questions there to check their listening. How many questions would you say that, that, that you ask in a 50-minute lesson? Oh, um, I think loads and loads and loads. I would say 40, 50, 60, even more questions in a 50-minute lesson. Um, obviously, it will depend on what percentage of the lesson I'm giving away to independent practice. But if I'm mainly instructing in a lesson, then definitely at least 40, 50 questions. Because um, they need it. If, they're gonna sustain, if we're going to sustain their attention for so long, then, as I said, in order to check their listening and check their understanding, they need a high frequency of questioning to feel engaged um, and to, to, be, to feel the need to stay engaged because no one wants to not to be able to answer a question. Um, so it helps them focus, definitely. Therefore, it helps you as a teacher continually check and rehearse that the understanding with the pupils. So can we go on to explore what your questioning principles are when you're considering planning a lesson? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of ways in which I plan my questions. So the first thing I do when planning a lesson is once I've established these are the key things I want my pupils to learn. And when I say that, by the way, there's a difference in what I used to do and what I do now. So before I would have these kind of success criteria of my lesson or these learning objectives, and it'd be very vague. It'd be something like no understand photosynthesis, be able to, uh, I don't know, apply understanding of photosynthesis. But what does that actually mean? Well, now I, have a, I make sure I'm really clear. Know the word equation for photosynthesis. Be able to uh, write sentences explaining where plants get light, uh, where plants get water and carbon dioxide from, and name the products of photosynthesis. So things like having been really clear on exactly what knowledge I expect the pupils to leave the lesson with. So because I'm clear on ex the precise knowledge I expect my pupils to leave the lesson holding and understanding, my questioning can then be built around those key facts. So I might have uh, um, my kind of key questions I want my pupils to be able to answer by the end of the lesson. But during the course of the, the, the explanation, I'm going to build up the complexity of my questioning. So I might start off with, as I said, really simple checks for listening but then i'm moving on to checks for understanding so the questions will get harder and they get as the lesson progresses um and so in terms of complexity they're building up they're getting harder they might initially require one word answers but move on to requiring them to use keywords in full sentences and explain how facts relate to each other but then the other thing i'm thinking about also is the techniques that i'm using when I'm asking my questions. So I have kind of four or five kind of strategies that I use in my arsenal of questioning. So the first one is simply hands up as, as is quite common, I would say is the most common in the classroom. The second is cold calling where regardless of whether a pupil has their hand up or not, you ask them a question. Um, and my top tip for this would be to always pose the question, pause, and then say the pupil's name. Because as soon as you say the pupil's name first, the rest of the class will probably stop listening because they know I'm not going to be asked. So flipping it around and having the name at the end just keeps everyone on their toes for that little bit longer. Um, the third strategy I use is mini whiteboards. This is great for seeing what everyone in the room is thinking and it forces every pupil to give an answer. Um, the next strategy I would use is turn to your partner. 
So where pupils just rehearse and say the answer to their partners um, before I have everyone's attention back again. And this, this, you know, if you watch the talk that I, where I, as you said, the effective questioning talk, um, you can hear some examples of what that sounds like in practice. Um, but it's meant to be really quick, 15, 20 second bursts of, you know, the children are all talking in the room and then three, two, one, hands up and everyone's attention is back on, on me and I'm, I can pick pupils to share their answers. Um, and then the final kind of way, the questioning method that I use is choral response where on a signal, usually one, two, three, uh, the whole people, the whole class rather, shouts the answer out at the same time. Now, of course, this works best for one word answers. So I might say, what process do plants use uh, that makes glucose on three? One, two, three, and they'd all shout photosynthesis. Um, and that's just a nice way of energizing the room. Um, so depending on my intention, if I want add lots of energy in the room i want to check everyone's listening i might use lots of call or response i might use lots of turn to your partner if i want to see everyone's thinking and unpick misconceptions i might use mini whiteboards and if i want pupils to rehearse speaking in full sentences using key vocabulary or uh, just having a go at something which is a little bit more challenging but I would want them to hear each other's answers and practice to give them the confidence to put their hands up as a confidence builder. I might use turn to your partner. So the kind of, those are the kind of the key principles you're building up in complexity over the lesson and you're choosing your strategy to suit your purposes, whether that's checking people's listening or checking their understanding or building confidence, for example. Right. And you mentioned throughout that when you gave a little example about cold calling and that you should pose the question and then pause for a bit so how important is it that, that students think hard during questioning and, and why is that important yeah so i think as i've said before if they're simply following an explanation and you just want to check their listening they're not necessarily thinking very hard but you know they're following and that's fine but of course, the ultimate goal of, of your lesson is for people to grapple with an idea and, and they need to be pushed to a point where they're, they're having to think hard in a lesson. And that will look different for different pupils, of course. Um, so it is essential for them to think hard because ultimately it's thinking hard that allows you to remember content better and to make sure you understand that content well. So I think that it's essential that your explanations always progress pupils to a point where they're having to think really hard. So there needs to be a point in the lesson when you're asking a question and hands aren't flying up as they might when you're checking for listening, but you want them to be kind of uncertain, putting their hands up, putting them back down, putting them hands up, because that's when you know there's a bit of struggle. You see it on their faces and you see it in the uncertainty of the hands going up. And Sometimes there's that awkward silence in the room where you've asked a question, there aren't any hands going up, but it's really important to wait because that's when you know thinking is hopefully happening in their brains. Um, and that's why independent work is so important. So mini whiteboard work or getting them to do a short task on their own in silence is so important because they need the opportunity to think about the content and then put it into words or put it on the page and then be willing to share that with the class. Um, so I think independent practice is key to a, a successful lesson that involves people's thinking hard. Um, and as a teacher, you're, you're kind of constantly look, reading the room. And if, if you're thinking, gosh, the questions, I'm, they're all 
up doing absolutely flying with the questions I'm asking them. You'd be thinking, how can I raise the challenge to make them think harder? And that's, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in teaching is to get that pitch right so that the thinking is really hard in the lesson and it, and it takes lots of time developing your explanations and your questioning strategies to, to get to a point where you're like, yes, there's real thinking in the lesson. And when there is, you can, and you get that sense that they're thinking really hard and they're getting there at the end, but with a bit of struggle, it's probably one of the most satisfying things as a teacher. So yeah, I'd say it's really important, uh, but it's very difficult to get right, of course. It certainly is. It's great that you're recognising that because it is it's something that's incredibly hard to get the pitch just right so that everyone in the room is challenged. It's often quite easy to challenge some of them, but mm. get, getting it right for all of them is, is definitely something that comes with, with, with years of practice. You mentioned about, you learn about students' responses. What do you ask or, or demand from your students in their responses to your questions? So when a pupil is giving an answer, I would usually, unless it's a very straightforward, uh, you know, call or response, if I'm picking an individual pupil, I would expect them to speak in full sentences. The reason for that is it's surprising how often pupils haven't quite connected the two facts you want them to. So a good example of this, I remember asking, explaining to my class that the heart is an organ that's part of the circulatory system and so the circulatory system is the organ system but the heart is the organ and I asked them quite a simple question it was something like um, so who can tell me what the main organ is in the circulatory system and the pupils I picked a pupil at random and they said uh, the heart and I said in a full sentence and they said the heart is an organ system in the organ and I was like, it's something to that effect. And I was like, hmm, are you sure? And they were like, yeah, it's, it's an organ system in the organ. I was like, oh. And if I hadn't asked for full sentences, the answer seemed right at first. But I didn't, if, but because I insisted on full sentence, I realized in their head, they'd got organ and organ system the wrong way around. Um, and I never would have suspected that that was a mistake that people would make. But it was because I insisted on full sentences that it was revealed to me. Um, so I think even something simple where they're putting two ideas together requires full sentences is really important um, and and so on that point I would expect them to use language very precisely because particularly in the discipline of science it's so and I'm sure it's true in all subjects uh, it's that can be the difference between demonstrating understanding and not is having using the correct terminology and having the correct syntax in your sentence so I would expect pupils to give me a good full sentence answer that is very coherent in its in its uh, in the language used, um, and when the answer is incorrect, as if sorry, if their answer is correct but it's not phrased well, I'm I'm, it can be tempting to say, oh, you're on the right track, but but let me just this is this is the, let me just correct the sentence for you, um, or to let them say, yeah, it's correct, and then rephrase it the correct way and move on without acknowledging that they had miss. Uh, had had said the 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 idea not perf not in the perfect way you want them to, um, but I think it's really important to always say when the answer is right, you say yes, that's correct, and when it's not, you say the idea is there, but you phrased it incorrectly. This is how you should phrase it, and by making that really explicit, you're supporting them to get there. Um, but you do need to acknowledge that, and it can be difficult as a teacher sometimes because you just want them to to have that yes, that's correct, or yeah, that's good, and then rephrase it yourself without actually acknowledging to the pupil. That actually you phrased it incorrectly this is how it should be said 
So, and, and does that kind of demand for sentences? Not, does that include the work you mentioned earlier? You use a lot of mini whiteboards. Does that, does that include when they're, when they're writing it down and they're writing their thoughts in the mini whiteboard and sharing that with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think with mini whiteboards, it can be tricky to go around and read all the, the boards in the room. So I guess it would depend on the kind of question I'm asking. Uh, but I certainly do take my time reading all the boards in the room when I'm getting them to write a sentence, for example. Um, and then even if you're taking a, 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 an example that's really nice, an example where there's a mistake and saying, oh, look, let's look at this board. If someone's made a really interesting mistake here, then you want to create a culture where, yeah, it's OK to make mistakes. And actually, we're, we can all learn from this. Thank you so much for sharing this, because actually I'm, I've seen a few boards where people have made this mistake. That can be really powerful as a way of normalizing. It's, we're all learning. Of course, we're going to make mistakes, but we're aiming high. We're making sure we're getting, getting it perfect. So yeah, absolutely. With written work, it's key. Certainly. And we're going to ask you now about um, behavior and routines in the classroom. So you've mentioned a lot of, of kind of how you teach and, and a lot of that would have need to be taught to the children and how you expect them to, to, to sit, to behave, to interact with you, to, an, to ask and answer questions. So what, why should teachers be clear and explicit with regards to behavior and routines in the classroom? Mm, that's a really good question because it's, I think until I joined Michaela, I hadn't, I'd underestimated the power of routine in the classroom um, and making behavioral, behavioral expectations really explicit. So for example, the way people's enter lessons uh, at my school is they would come in in complete silence and they go straight to their seats unpack their equipment and wait for the teacher's instruction um, and because we do this consistently around the school it's it works really well and it embed it embeds really quickly but even if you were a teacher on doing it on your own in the classroom uh, having a routine is essential because it means the people then no longer have to think about what they're doing. It just happens on autopilot. And when things happen on autopilot, that's brilliant because they then you expend less energy as a teacher getting them to do the right thing. And they, you know, if they're on autopilot and they're doing the thing you want them to do, that's the ideal situation because they're, they're now able to start the lesson quickly and get on with the learning, which is what the lesson's about. So getting them in, standing behind the chairs, the teacher says three, two, one, and slant, and they're all tracking you. And then the teacher says, take your seats. And they have a tent, and you're counting down. And countdowns are so important because kids love competition. And anything you can turn into competition will, the, the buy in will just be really high. So as soon as you say, oh, I wonder which row is going to be first to sat down, as soon as I say, go, 10 seconds, go, 10, nine, eight. And you're, you're, you're adding drama with your voice. And you're saying, oh, front rows looks like they're going to be the first one. Six, five, four, three, two, one. And suddenly they're all like rushing to get in on the, by the last second. And they love it. They love that kind of competition. And that's a really good, I would say, any routine you have, you automate it and you get you ti effectively time it and, and get them to compete either with each other in the room or with their previous selves. So you can say, oh, yesterday we got, we were all seated within 25 seconds. I wonder if you can do it in 23 today. Um, or my year eights did this in in 15 seconds. We're on 20. Come on, year 10. They love that kind of thing. So that can be really effective as a way of getting them to just get into the learning as quickly as possible. 
Um, and then, as I said, three, two, one slant is a key routine we use in the classroom as well. Handing out books. Again, you have a countdown, you have the, the books are collected row by row and they're left at the end of the desk. So as soon as they come in, the person at the end, you can say books out, ready, go. And they're handing the books out down the row. They take their book, pass the pile along. And again, turning that into a competition means it just gets quicker and quicker over time. And then you say three, two, one slant. And just the dramatic pause afterwards, oh, front row, you, you clinched it today, well done. Let's get our books open to page five, go. Everything is always instruction, go. Instruction, go, countdown as well. Um, and that can be really, really powerful. Um, and then the other routines are just in terms of executing the different activities you then have in the classroom. So where, like I said, like before, there'll be posters around the room. Sometimes they're teaching each other. Sometimes I'm doing hot spotting. Sometimes I'm doing, God knows, there were hundreds of activities I thought I should try in the classroom. Whereas now there's only a handful of activities in my arsenal. Turn to your partner, call or response. You're writing in silence. You're slanting. You're putting your hands up. And that's about it. Um, and so it can be possible to automate all those routines because um, there's no, there's no you know, complex array of activities that I'm doing. There's no cutting and sticking. There's no, you know, moving around the room in this way. There's no group work. Everything is boiled down to something that's really simple. It becomes possible to then have such slick routines that the 99.9% .9 of the lesson is spent learning and thinking hard about content. And that 0.1% of time is expended to execute the routines that allows them to think. Certainly, it's that idea of, of doing more by doing less and having less routines that you've automated. You can then do more learning and continue to accelerate the rate of learning. So one thing that you yeah. mentioned that we haven't um, explored is you mentioned independent practice. What does that look like in your classroom and, and what do you expect during independent practice? So during independent practice, the pupils will simply be answering a series of questions in their books in complete silence. Um, there's no, oh, let me just help this person next to me at all. It's all independent. Um, and the reason for that is because every pupil needs time to grapple with the ideas themselves. They need the, the, the space to think um, hard about the content. And, and that's it. There's, there's no, as I said, there's no variety. Um, in terms of them trying different activities. And I used to think that, that was really tricky. Um, and I, and, and what, before I joined Michaela, I, I, I actually bumped into one of the teachers at a talk, um, Katie Ashford, who's the, the deputy head. Um, and I asked her, I said, oh, I'm trying out some of these ideas in the classroom, but I'm stumped by this idea of variety. Like the kids need variety. What do you do at Michaela to give variety to your pupils? And she said, well, do they need variety? Um, or can they just answer questions? And the fact that the questions are different each time because the content is different is challenging enough and interesting enough because at the end of the day, it's the, it's the science that's the most interesting thing. And that's what the kids are there to learn. So that's all the variety that they need. And that for me was a real kind of, that's when the penny dropped for me that, right, this is it. Activities, goodbye. Hello, just lots of questions. Um, and the, as I said earlier, that it's, it's the success that comes from being able to answer those questions. That's so powerful. So when I started introducing this, this use of uh, explicit instruction at my previous school, where it was still, we were kind of trialing the idea and we were trying the idea of booklets. I remember observing another teacher using some of the booklets that we had written as a department. And some of the naughtiest pupils, I remember in that class, they were listening to the, the teacher 
uh, they were had their hands up to try and answer a question that the teacher was a- asking, whilst at the same time secretly answering the question, the comprehension questions in the booklet, because they just were, they felt so successful that they were able to get on with it because they understood everything because everything was explained clearly to them. Whereas, whereas in our previous pedagogy, they were having to go around read disparate bits of information around the room and when they asked a question that had a straightforward answer the teacher would withhold the information thinking they were developing these skills whereas all they were doing is holding the pupils back from understanding the content and then feeling successful um so the the bottom line is that the giving the clear explanations allows them to then on their own be able to succeed and fly with that with that knowledge um and that ultimately has has shown me that this idea of activities really isn't the way forward whereas the idea of clear explanations lots of questioning and then lots of independent practice where they can consolidate their learning on their own will allow them to see themselves yes i can do this on my own uh and that's what motivates them ultimately right i like how that that story about um the naughty people's being keen for success because they had learning that was clearly explained to them and they had an opportunity for success and that motivates them to to really take part in learning so that's a wonderful way to, to finish the main interview section protest so we're going to move on to my, my final three questions and these are the questions that i ask ask every guest are standard across all the podcasts and before we do that can you please share where listeners can find out more about with you sorry (laughs) more about you where they can listen to some of the wonderful talks that you've put out there and where they can connect with you on social media yeah sure so my blog title is bunsen blue dot wordpress.com so if you type in bunsen blue on google you'll find my blog there if you type in bunsen blue on youtube you'll find i've got uh, all the talks that I've given virtually for the research sheds that have happened kind of post since COVID has happened, it's all gone online, but that's great because it means those talks are there for everyone to look at. Um, so if you just type in Bunsen Blue on YouTube, you'll find a series of talks. We, as you said before, there are bits of my lessons as well, where you can see the things I've talked about in action. Um, and on Twitter, my handle is at Mr. Underscore Raichura, um, where I'm more than happy to answer any questions um or yeah for you to just interact with me say hello certainly and i'd i'd really encourage if if there was only you only had time for one of the videos i really encourage the effective questioning one the clips that you're sharing of your teaching are are, are wonderful and to listen to yourself and, and how you teach and how the kids are answering questions so confidently and 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 in, in, in full sentences as well is it, it really wonderful and, and i've shared that with many of my colleagues well, thank you that's very kind not not a problem the thanks to you for for being brave enough to put that out there and it, <laughs> it certainly is wonderful if only more teachers could do that and um, so on to the final three now and the first question within that is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career oh um I would probably say that uh, Seven Myths About Education by Daisy Christodoulou was probably the first book on education that I read. And it really transformed the way I thought about lessons um, with a focus on knowledge, not skills, being the key thing that I hadn't understood up until that point. Um, And the idea that skills 
are always bound to the domain that you are practicing those skills in and they're bound to a body of knowledge and so the knowledge must come first um and you know as i've said the once the kids have really strong knowledge that you 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 as a teacher have planned for them to acquire during your lesson they then ask the most remarkable questions and they think so well about the topics um and that's where the skills come in and what i thought i was doing when i was teaching student led lessons or facilitating them i guess you're not teaching those lessons you're facilitating learning there is i thought i was developing skills but actually what happens is the kids leave my lessons neither having the knowledge nor the skills whereas when you teach with a focus on knowledge not only do they develop the knowledge and become confident with it they also then develop the skills like thinking critically about the knowledge they have in their in their heads um so yeah daisy christadulu i would definitely recommend definitely thank you very much thank you very much and that is certainly a wonderful reading i love how that has helped shape your practice up up to this point the second question is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher what would that be i would say read lots um because ultimately it's very easy to go through the motions as a teacher you're in the classroom you're delivering your lessons uh you go home you want to unwind and then you come back the next day and you keep delivering lessons and you then don't expose yourself to to what's out there um and that could potentially really transform your practice and i think for me the biggest catalyst for changing the way i teach uh was through reading books like daisy christadulu's or like david dow's um, um or in, i mean indeed if i shamelessly plug the michaela books um the power of culture and the battle hymn of the tiger teacher they all have the potential to transform and i guess in the same vein same vein observe other teachers who have different you know ways of teaching to you so if you're someone who's teaching lots of student led lessons and you know there's a teacher who does lots of teacher led teaching go and see what it's like um because you might find lots of ideas that you like there and that you can then steal and try in your own classroom certainly great great advice to i love that one about going and observing different teachers who teach differently from you to see what you can steal and what you can magpie and, and ultimately what you can learn. Mm-hmm. Final question of our interview is, what do you think gets in the way most of, of just great teaching in our classrooms? I think it ultimately has to boil down to, to bad ideas. Um, so it's tricky because when, you know, I, it, people often think the solution to the education, you know, the, 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 the problems in education is to always kind of throw money at problems. Um, but really with little money and with the right ideas, you can really change a school and turn it around. And, and that can be in the form of the culture that you have in the school. It can be the pedagogy that you're using. It can be your beliefs about the behavior system. Um, you know, like a good example with that is, uh, you know, lots of schools that are moving towards, uh, you know, no detentions, but lots of restorative practice and restorative conversations can seem like a, a really appealing idea because you want to appeal to the, the good nature of the child and and get them, to, you know, just through that conversation, change the way they behave. Um, but ultimately what, you know, certainly in my experience, and I know lots of people's experiences that without a clear consequence, like a detention, 
in addition to the restorative conversation, uh, behavior is very difficult to change because that's just the na human nature and it's just the way that, that children are. Um, so I would say ideas, bad ideas get in the way of great teaching because bad ideas can lead to bad behavior in the classroom. Bad ideas can lead to so much paperwork and so many systems of accountability that don't actually improve teaching and don't actually change the culture of a school. Um, and bad ideas ultimately don't allow a, a, a great culture in the classroom. Um, and that's why I, my advice to, to teach would always be to read lots and see what's out there, um, because that can inspire you to find the ideas that will help to, to overcome the barriers to, to your teaching. To the struggles you're facing in the classroom certainly does and, and, and ultimately overcome those barriers so that you can help as we said right back at the start accelerate the rate of learning of the young people in our classrooms and that wraps up wonderfully Pratesh so it just leaves me to, to say thank you so so much for giving up some of your time during your half term to, to come on the, the podcast today and thank you so much for, for sharing what um, things look like in your classroom Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, Darren. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.